If you have a Bible, would you uh, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1? The book of Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. We started this series a couple weeks ago, and in fact, last week we were actually in the same passage that we're looking at this morning because, as I said last Sunday, there's so much here, it's going to take us a little bit of time to work through uh, all that the Lord would have for us here in these uh, handful of verses at the beginning of, of Ephesians chapter 1. But if you're, if you're new or you're visiting, welcome. Uh, you're joining us online, welcome. We uh, we started this series a couple weeks ago, and we've titled it Built Together, because my, my principal um, uh, kind of big point that the book of Ephesians gives us is this idea that, that God is divinely working through His Son, through the Spirit, to unite the church in, in a way that, um, that, that, is, that is otherworldly, that we are, we are being built by God together, one into another, to represent the faith and to, to live in unity in a way that the world should, should cause the world to marvel. On top of that, the, the way that, that Paul has laid out the book of Ephesians, he gives us in the first three chapters uh, what God has done. It's all written in the Greek indicative. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter four, you get a, a, a shift or a turn where it goes to the imperative. Because of what God has done. This is then how you should live. And so that's the vision that God has for the church, the people who are built together because of what God has done for them in Jesus. And then they live in a particular way that reflects that out into the world. And so we started last week in the, the, this very first part of chapter one, where the apostle Paul verses three through 14 is one long run on sentence. It's, um, 202 words, I believe, in the original language where uh, Paul's, as I said last week, spitting bars. He's, he's, he's doing a first century rap of sorts about uh, who God is and what God has done in the Son. And then even what we'll look at today, how God has signified and sealed what God has done for us by giving us the Holy Spirit. And that, that's our main point of emphasis today as we look at this particular passage, especially at the, the close of this passage, verses 13 and 14. Uh, how does God make known to us the salvation that he's won for us in Jesus in a, in, in a very real and experiential sense? How, how do we experience the salvation that God has given us? Look at, with me, if you will, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of 
of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. My family growing up was what, what I would call a knockoff family. And by that, I, I don't mean like it was a fake family. We just happened to be a family that only bought the knockoff of every brand. Everything was, was a rip. It was off brand. It was great, great value. And so the majority of my childhood was kind of shrouded in shame because when I would take my lunch to school, I didn't have Mountain Dew. I had Mountain Shasta. <laughs> and this is always a part of like... We had to do, I always called it soda math. Like my mom would take us to the store and she'd be like, okay, you can get a six pack of Dr. Pepper, but you can get a case of Dr. Thunder. And I'm like, well, this is an easy decision. Give me more. I want quantity, not quality. And so I would take my lunch to school and I would always feel a little bit of shame or embarrassment because, you know, I'm, I'm cracking open the Dr. Thunder and my buddy's got a Dr. Pepper or he's got Vienna sausages and I got cocktail franks. Which always, looking back on it, I was like, okay, like a Vienna sausage. If you put some sort of locale on the map, it makes it fancy. But the knockoff is cocktail franks, as if anyone's walking around at a cocktail party with a martini and a little slimy hot dog, you know? (laughs) How gross. But anyway, so I would always feel a little bit of shame, a little bit of like uh, feeling less than. But, But every so often... My dad was a construction worker, and he, he was a welder, and so often his contracts with this construction company he worked for was with the Frito-Lay company, and so he would go weld in these Frito-Lay factories, and he would come back, and he would bring cases of the little bags of chips, the, the real deal, and so I would have a choice between Doritos or Cheetos or Chili Cheese Fritos, which are still the greatest of all time, by the way. Yes, you can applaud that. Um, <laughs> your breath is awful, but... They're delicious. And so I would walk into like the lunchroom in elementary school with my chest held high. You know, I may have a Dr. Thunder and I may have cocktail franks, but check it out, baby. That says Cheetos, not crunchy cheese curls. This is the real thing. This isn't flavored corn chips. This is Fritos. I got the real article, the genuine thing. And so there was a measure of confidence that came with that, a measure of I have arrived that came with that. A feeling as though I've been validated and authenticated in some way. Now, as weird as a, of an analogy as this is, I believe that whenever you end this section where Paul is giving this just effusive praise about what God has done for us in Jesus, he, he kind of brings it to a crescendo at the very end by highlighting these last two verses, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He starts with the work of God before the foundation of the earth. In the middle, we get the work of the Son in adopting us and and making us redeemed and forgiven and lavish grace poured out on him. But how then do we, as God's children or as as followers of Jesus, how then do we know and experience that that God is really for us and not against us? Has God marked us in some way so that we have the confidence And we we have the the rite of passage to say, yes, I belong to to Jesus and he belongs to me. And to that end, Paul highlights the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives to to make us one with Jesus and also to fill us with what we need to live into the world to the fullness of his glory. I think that this is important for us for really a couple of reasons today, but I want to highlight a couple before we really jump into the text. One is we live in what many have called the age of authenticity where you hear this sort of common refrain in popular culture about, you know, be true to yourself, live your truth, even though those, those designations are never given much definition. That's just sort of things that get said. Live, live your truth. Live, be true to yourself. 
The problem with the age of authenticity is that it's utterly subjective what that experience looks like or means. That's why we see so much confusion today on issues like gender and sexuality and people claiming to be kind of whatever they want to be. And there's no consistency to it, no logic to it, which brings with it what I think is true to the age, the spirit of the age that we live in, which is the age of cynicism. Everyone's a cynic now. Everyone sees through everything. No one really believes anything can be genuine or authentic or true or right or good or beautiful because we, we all feel like everything's a fraud these days. Truth has been lost in, in the mix. And I think that what we're talking about today is important on those two fronts, specifically in the age of authenticity. How do Christians know what it means to authentically be a follower of Jesus, to be a genuine disciple of his? to be possessed by God and ruled by him and have him as both your Lord and your Savior? And then how does that truth then tap down our inner cynicism? How does it address the fact that we think we see through all things? How does it keep us a hope-filled people? Because you can't be a cynic and be hopeful at the same time. Hope gets lost in the, in the age of cynicism. You can't believe that anything good's ever coming for anyone because you see through all the things. And I think that this particular truth this morning lands on our hearts and our souls on that particular front. And so to get us there, I want to highlight really the three ways that, that Paul kind of puts a bow on this, this long list of things that he's praising God for. He, he says three things about the Spirit that I'm going to apply in three very specific ways. He says the Spirit is our seal, the, the Spirit is, um, is, is, is a promise, and the Spirit is a guarantee. That's the way he kind of phrases The Spirit is a seal. God has sealed us in the Spirit. The, the Spirit is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to us. And the Spirit is a guarantee that God can be kept true to His Word into the future. So I'm going to take those three things and talk about them this way. Uh, the person of God, we'll go back and review last week a little bit. That's about the seal. The presence of God, that's about the promise. And then the praise of God, that's about the guarantee. Purpose, the, 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 the person of God, the, the, the presence of God and the praise of God. So let's jump in. Let me show you what I mean by all that. The first off, Paul has talked a lot in these, what, uh, 11 verses about the person of God. It started way back in verse 3 when he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God the Father who chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ. So, so he starts with the person of God by pointing to God the Father who chose us. And he says he's given us every spiritual blessing. I told you to put a pin in that last week so we could talk about it more this week. But part of why I told you to put a pin in it is we were filling out the category for what the blessings, spiritual blessings are that we have in the heavenly places last week. What we have bound up in God is that he has given us every spiritual blessing, namely that he, he will make us holy and blameless before him. That's how Paul says it, that we will be holy and blameless. We talked about this when we studied the book of Hebrews, but one of the great things about the way the Bible talks about us being holy and blameless is that it's, it's already and it's not yet. That we are already in the heavenlies standing before God as though we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and we are utterly perfect in his sight. That's the doctrine of justification. When, when we trust Christ by faith, we are justified in him. It's just as if we'd never sinned and it's just as if we always obeyed. God took our penalty and nailed it to Christ's cross, to Christ's right, righteousness and clothed us with that so that we stand before God holy and blameless. And it's not yet fully realized. So God is working that out in our lives in an ongoing, increasing fashion day to day by faith and repentance. 
as we see incongruence in our lives between who we are in Christ and how we are currently living, we trust by faith that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We turn from those sins. We turn from those acts. We trust once again that God has forgiven us because he has, and God renews us from the inside out. So we, he chose us, the Father chose us, that we should be holy and blameless, and he did this by adopting us through the Son. He has adopted us, Paul says in the beginning. The Father puts his favor upon us in Jesus such that we are adopted as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. So Paul phrases it. So then we get to the work of the Son, and we see that the Son saved us. And, and we talked about this last week. If you were here, the Son saved us by by redemption, his blood was shed in that kind of Old Testament Passover sense. The blood of Christ covers us so that we are redeemed. We are bought. We are purchased from slavery, from Satan, from sin, from death, from hell. We, we are now owned by God, but we're also forgiven of all of our trespasses, Paul says. Our trespasses have been, our sins have been forgiven. And God is, is pouring out lavish grace upon us, this sort of exorbitant amount of grace, grace upon grace upon grace, the, for, the riches of his grace, he says, that God la- loves to lavish upon us. So that's what we have in God the Father. That's what we have in God the Son, such that then Paul in verse 11 starts talking about how we experience all of that through the person of the Holy Spirit. Look back in verse 11. In him, that is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here it is, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're chosen by the, son, by the Father, we are saved through the Son, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, Paul says. Now, This imagery is unbelievably rich in the words that Paul uses here. As if it wasn't already rich enough and and, and deep enough and expansive enough, Paul brings this entire first century rap to a crescendo by using the the imagery of of a seal. This is what God has done for us in the the person of the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us. Now, seals are um, probably, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the animal, I'm talking about the seal as a thing. Seal in the ancient world is a lot different than a seal in in our world because we live in a world of of trademarks and copyrights and things of that nature. In the ancient world, a seal had multiple functions, four of which I think apply to what Paul is talking about here and what I think we would would do well to spend some time on this morning trying to understand what Paul means when he talks about God sealing us in the Holy Spirit. The first purpose of a seal in the ancient world was the seal was a mark of security. It was, it was, a, it was a promise of, of security. So, so uh, in, the, in the Roman world, if, if, there, if goods were going to be shipped by the empire, if the Roman empire was going to take, let's just say, uh, grain and send it from, from, from Rome all the way up to the far expansive reaches of some other city in the empire to supply you know, troops or, uh, or, or government officials, then they would put a, an empirical seal on, on the thing that they were shipping. And the seal mainly served the purpose of security because should some thieves decide, hey, you know what? Got an idea. There's a big bunch of grain going from Rome out to Ephesus. Let's hijack that and take it for ourselves. If it was marked with an empirical seal, 
and you were known to be the one who took something that belonged to the empire, that was punishable by death. And so the seal kind of served as a warning sign to any potential threats, any potential thieves. Hey, if you mess with this, you're in big, big trouble. This belongs to the king. This belongs to the emperor. The empire owns this. It's not yours. Stay away. So I think that if we take that imagery or that idea and we apply it to what Paul's talking about of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's very similar. God has stamped us with the Holy Spirit such that the devil himself should run and flee. We belong to the Father now. We are possessed by him. The devil has no power over us. The enemy, Satan himself, is no threat to us because God has sealed us by the promised Holy Spirit. So just as I walked into the cafeteria with my bag of chili cheese Fritos and my chest was puffed up because I could say, I've got the genuine thing and it belongs to me, so too should Christians walk into the world believing, hey, the Spirit has stamped me and sealed me. I belong to God now. The devil has no power over me. Satan is no threat to me. God's mark of security has been placed upon me in the Holy Spirit. The second way I think that a seal can be applied here, because in the ancient world, the seal was a sign of authenticity. Seal, a seal would serve the purpose of showing something to be authentic. It differentiated the genuine from the counterfeit. So this week, I've got to, um, I've got to have a paper notarized for a board that I sit on. I serve, I guess, as the, the secretary. I don't know how I got put in that role, but I guess all it means is that every so often someone gives me an email and says, hey, you got to get this signed and notarized and send it back so the state will approve it. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So I got to get something notarized. But how does the notary work? I stand there with a person and they look at my driver's license and they look at me and then I sign the paper and then they come along with their seal, that little cool little clamping device, and they, they write on it, stamp it, and then they sign it, which essentially says this signature is a valid signature. It's authentic. This isn't a forgery. I got the guy's government-issued ID. I got him standing in front of me. He signed it, and my seal now serves as a gateway into the, the halls of power to say that this thing is true. This thing is genuine. This thing is authentic. I think when Paul's talking about the Spirit coming and sealing us, he's, he's telling us we have an authentic faith that the Spirit lives and works in us. God authenticates our salvation by giving us the Spirit. He makes, us know, makes it known to us that, that, that it is genuine, that it's real, that it's good, that it's right. And why is that important? Because I don't know if any of y'all suffer from this plaguing thing called imposter syndrome, but I do. Imposter syndrome, I think the clinical word term is, means that you always have this little bit of suspicion, smoldering suspicion, or sometimes exaggerated suspicion that I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. And so there's this still small voice that resides within you that says, hey, man, um, you don't have what it takes, and you don't have a right to be here. And so the seal of the Spirit to authenticate our faith is God placing another voice within us that says, no, you do. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the imposter syndrome, the, the voice of the enemy, the devil trying to trip us up and be some sort of threat to us. It, it, God has given us the internal security by the Spirit to, to authenticate our faith such that we don't have to jump on that treadmill anymore. We don't have to keep listening to that voice or trying to, to quiet that by our efforts. God has, by His Spirit, authenticated the faith for those who belong to Jesus 
The seal of the Spirit differentiates genuine faith from, from an inauthentic faith, and we can actually experience it, I think Paul says, as we tap into the person of God. Third, the seal was meant to mark ownership. Seals revealed in the ancient world that a person or a thing was possessed by someone else. It was a way of you know, saying, this is mine. This, is, this belongs to me. You see this with insignias on king's rings when they would sign letters or edicts that would go out into the empire or the kingdom that they ruled. They would dip their ring in wax and they would place it upon that so that they could say, this, this edict is mine. It belongs to me. This, this ruling, this verdict, it belongs to, to the empire now. It's a possession so, so God is telling us here by what the Holy Spirit does, God, God stamps us with his ownership. He, he, he has taken possession of us. And I grew up out in the country on lots of acreage surrounded by lots of other acreage. And most people where I lived had cows. And I don't know if you've seen cows lately, but they can all kind of look alike after a while, especially if they're of the same breed. So what would we do when we get a new batch of cows on our property? We would take them into our corral. We would put them in a head chute, and my dad would brand them. My uncle would brand them. He'd put your stamp on it so that if that cow got in someone else's pasture, though it's a Holstein is a Holstein is a Holstein, and Angus is an Angus is an Angus, you could look at it and say, no, that one's mine because I stamped it and I sealed it. So God has done that for us in the Holy Spirit. It's his mark of showing ownership over us. This is exactly the argument Paul makes, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in maybe one of the most fascinating passages in the New Testament. That's where Paul says that for the Corinthian church who has all of this confusion about their sexuality, Paul says, ah, the spirit dwells within us. We were bought with a price and we are no longer our own. We are now an a temple, as it were, of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So we're not identified by our sexual expression. We are instead owned by God. And so how we express ourselves in this particular fashion is meant to reflect who we are as those possessed by God. It's why there is no such thing as like, I'm tapping into my true self and expressing myself in this way if, if, if your true self is possessed by another. And that's what, that's what Paul says there and here. The Spirit possesses us, takes ownership of us. So we belong to God and he belongs to us. We were bought with a price. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Fourth, finally, the stamp or the seal was a sign of authority. It was a designation of an, of an office or, uh, or, or a service. We're given credentials by God because the Holy Spirit indwells us. We think of this in our world today. If you get stopped by a police officer on the way home, God forbid that happens, but they pull out their badge. They're showing you a seal that says, I have a right to do this. I have a right to be here. I have a right to execute this authority to act in this fashion because I have this particular seal. A couple years back, I got to go to a concert for the first time with like VIP access. And it was kind of like I had a friend of a friend of a friend. It was nothing I could have gotten for myself. And and so um, I got to walk in. We, we came in through a different entrance than the plebes and the simpletons and the cheap seats. Came in through a different inches. We got to sit on like couches instead of like hard chairs. And then when the thing was over, uh, the, the, the masses had to like evacuate through the little small tunnels where they're standing in lines. And we had an usher like come and get us and take us to like a secret passageway. And I had this lanyard on. And I, you know, there's that scene in the old movie Wayne's World where they're walking around doing this the whole time. Like, hey, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. Look, I got the thing. That's how I was. I was like, I promise. I know I look like I'm an, I'm an imposter. <laughs> kind of am. But I got a friend of a friend who got me in. Like, this is my authority. I have a right. I have a privilege because of this. 
So when God stamps us with the Holy Spirit, it's that sort of credentials and privileges that we're given. We have a right to be here. We have a right to, in the name of Jesus, to to move forward in a particular fashion that brings God glory and honor. When we sing songs to to the Lord, like we just sang a minute ago, we have a right to stand on those trees. When we take communion in a few moments, we have a right to sit at the table of Jesus, not because of good we've done, but because of grace, because God has loved us and he's given us his spirit. He's bought and purchased our, our privileges. That's the picture that we're given of what the spirit does in our lives. It confirms to us this authority that we've been given. And and to to Paul writing to a church made up of Jew and Gentile and all the Gentiles who come from really dark pagan backgrounds who are like, oh, they've been doing this dietary restriction thing for their entire lives. I still eat stuff that they think is gross. I don't have a right to be here. This is good news. No, you've been sealed with the spirit. You have just as much of, of a right as anyone else. It's why when we get to chapter two and Paul says it's by grace, we are saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. The the spirit indwells Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, everyone from every far flung part of the world. The spirit has marked you off and has given you that authority. You're supposed to be here. Now, that's the, the person of God and the Holy Spirit, what that means for us that we are sealed. But it's a promise that God gave to his people. A promise that was fulfilled. And that's about the presence of God indwelling our lives. God setting up shop within us. God moving into the space of me so that I can be new and be free and be renewed on an ever-increasing, ongoing basis. The presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit means that, that for us, God's presence within us is a result of his promise to us. That's how Paul says it here. This is old covenant versus new covenant type language. He says there at the back half, this is not a result of, uh, this is, we were sealed for our salvation with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit was something that was promised long before. I I think that if you were to go into the Old Testament this morning and kind of excavate what what Paul may be referencing here in this, you would see in places like Jeremiah and places like Ezekiel, where where the new covenant was going to operate for the people of God on, on different terms than the old covenant. And you can even see it in the language. So if you go back to, say, um, the giving of the Ten Commandments or, or in the Torah and the first five books of the Old Testament, anytime God's giving a law, you're going to see these two words partnered together a lot. You shall. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbors. You shall not commit adultery. You shall. You shall. You shall. You shall. When you get to the references to the New Covenant, by the time you get to the promise of the prophets in the, in the latter half of the Old Testament... You hear God saying things like this, I will. I will will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law upon your hearts. I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This transition between old covenant and new covenant was a promise that God said. It's going to transition from you shall to I will. And when God does that within us, The you shalls begin to manifest themselves because of God's power living within us, God dwelling within us. I'll take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll make you responsive to the good news of the gospel. I'll make you responsive to the law. I'll make you find joy in obedience. I will do that. I'll write it upon your heart, the prophets would say. So Paul says, God's presence within us is a result of his promise to us. And this is good news because Israel is always, always wrestling with exile. The you shalls, they weren't living up to it. 
They never lived up to it. And so they were always being separated from the presence of God, separated from the divine promises that were given to them because they couldn't do the you shalls. Because God has done the I will, Paul says, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit within us. We are now the temple. We are made holy through the Spirit so that God can dwell within us. If you were to look at places in like the book of Leviticus where what happens when anything unclean enters the holy of holies, they die. They are struck down. It's terrifying. You think, man, if I'm in the presence of God, I got no shot. But what if God is in the presence of you? That's the imagery of what Paul is saying here. What if God made you so clean, so holy, so blameless through the person of Jesus that he could set up residence within you? I believe at minimum, this means that Christianity is not first and foremost an external relationship to which you conform. It's an internal reality that transforms you. Christianity is not first and foremost an external relationship to which you conform, but rather it is an internal reality, God dwelling within me that changes me from the inside out. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit, God's presence within us. Secondly, God's presence within you needs to be a constant reminder to you that God is in constant pursuit of you. God is always pursuing you. He hasn't given up on you. He won't leave you, nor, for, nor will he forsake you. That's why he set his spirit within you, so that you are empowered to do the things he's called you to do. In conversion, that's what Paul said at the beginning of this passage, when we were converted, God summoned us through the gospel, and we believed, and and a, a miracle happened. Conversion isn't just making a good decision. Conversion is being transformed from death into life. The, the gospel and the good news of what God's calling us to is not about making bad people nice people. It's about bringing dead people to life. And then God's, God convicts us of sin. That's good news. The Spirit works within us to cut us to the heart, as Acts chapter 2 says. There Peter preaches the gospel. Cowardly Peter, who's transformed into a, a courageous man, preaches the good news of the gospel. And people who had been enemies of God become sons and daughters because it says they were cut to the heart. And the Spirit convicted them. And then God changes us. He makes us holy. He makes us blameless. He works in our lives to, to form us into the image of likeness of Jesus. And he's always pursuing us to this end. And think about it this way. We were so messed up, God had to put a counselor inside of us. We were so weak and powerless, God had to fill us with divine power for, the, for there to be any chance of change. Because if we do moral conformity apart from the spirit, we just become arrogant and prideful. But if the Spirit works from within, then we can actually find joy in obedience without looking down our nose at anyone else who's not living the way that we are. That's a miracle that the Spirit grants to us. We were so helpless, God had to place the helper within us. So if you're in a season of, of shame, know that God's in constant pursuit of you even now. Despite your failures last week or in the last 24 hours, God wants to bring you back through faith and repentance into a state of renewal if you're in a state of indifference today, if you came in just utterly apathetic, God's, God's there. He hadn't gone anywhere. He's beckoning you even now by his spirit. He's pursuing you. Turn to him in trust. Turn to him in faith. And what would that look like? That's where we get to the praise of God, the praise of God. That's what Paul mentions three times in this, this effusive praise that he gives to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Why did God do all this? What's he, what's he aiming for? What's he looking for by marking you with the Holy Spirit, by sealing you, by promising it to you? He's doing it so that you will live a life that is marked by praise. 
That's where this word guarantee comes in. Right there towards the end, verse 14, the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So uh, how many of you guys remember layaway? Okay. This says more about the age of this crowd. <laughs> but next hour, I got to go into way more detail. But layaway, um, <laughs> no offense, just being honest. Layaway was this time when our society um, reinforced delayed gratification, right? Where you wanted something, you didn't just, you know, at, at one time you had to swipe something. Now I could just walk up with my watch and be like, boom, I don't got the money, but it's mine. You know, it's tappity tap tap, give me the thing, you know. But there was a time when that wasn't the case. And some of y'all remember, you'd have to go pick out what you wanted, go to the back. It was like the back alley of Walmart where you're cutting a deal with the mob because you don't pay up, you know, we're, uh, anyway, so you would put something, you would purchase something, you put down a down payment, and then you would come in, you know, kind of monthly and, and, and pay on it so that you could take possession of it. I remember as a kid, my trick was always to tell my mom I was going to go look at the toys, and she'd say, yeah, I'm going to go look at the fabric, because she knew I wouldn't go over to the fabric section, because that was the most boring place in Walmart. <laughs> but what she meant was, I'm actually going to sneak over to layaway on the way, and I'm going to pay some on your Christmas presents. And so if I just happened upon her there, I may get a little peek at what's, you know, coming in a few months. Layaway. You make a down payment, but you haven't taken inheritance of it yet. That's the language that Paul uses here. It's, the Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring to us. It's God's down payment to us. We don't have the fullness of that inheritance. We don't have the fullness, the full expression of all those spiritual blessings. But because the Spirit dwells within us, we have a foretaste. We, we have a little bit of it in the here and now. We can experience some of that in the here and now. We can uh, in, encounter that in the here and now. You say, well, that sounds a little bit charismatic or Pentecostal. No, I'm not leaning there, but, but there is something experiential about the spirit dwelling within us. There's something demonstrably different in the New Testament from the people of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit than what happened in the Old Covenant. And so since we have this guarantee, then God deserves all the glory. That's the point Paul's making in this entire hymn, this entire section of praise. God gets all the glory. What does it look like to experience the, the spirit in you now? Give God the glory and see what God does. Father, to that end, would we be a people who are compelled by your spirit, who experience your spirit leading us to faith and to, to trust and to hope, who experience your spirit bringing conviction and once again, marking us off as those who belong to you by reminding us of the, the things in our life that you want to change and transform, the shame you want us to shed, the guilt you want to, to be covered by the forgiveness of sins, the, the faith and the power you want us to live into because of all the good that you have in store for us and a heritage that is guaranteed and will one day be all ours. So to that end this morning, Lord, deepen our faith and our trust in you. Holy Spirit, Move in power in our midst such that we experience you even in a new way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.